Well, good morning, everyone. It's a real delight to be back with you. I've been here a couple times. Thank you, Jeff, for the invitation. I really enjoy coming. I, I go around the entire country. In my role as, as your national president, I visit our churches right across the country, and I always tell them about the best lobby, the best church lobby is in a church in St. Catharines. I mean, it's like a bowling alley here. It's so huge. I love this lobby. I really do. I tell Jeff this all the time. I wish our churches would learn from what you've got out there. Anyway, it's a joy to be back with you. Um, I've had to, after COVID and being stuck and isolated and restricted and locked down for a couple years, the last two months I've been traveling like crazy, visiting our churches. And any given Sunday, I've been all over the country the last couple months. And just seeing how the churches are coming out of this, this very interesting time and uh, I've been very interested to see how mission is still advancing, how wonderful things have been occurring in our churches in the midst, uh, sometimes done in very creative ways. And uh, just praising God for the leaders within our churches who have continued to help our churches remain on mission. We have actually, at our national, we care for a number of things on behalf of our churches on mission. And we've been actually very, very busy. I thought it would slow down, but it's actually been an accelerated time of recruitment. In the last 18 months, we have uh, recruited uh, 16 couples to go on career long-term missions and other mid- and short-term missionaries as well. But for us, 16 and 18 months, that's, that's a record. Uh, our chaplaincy ministry has grown by 46 chaplains in the last 18 months. It's just phenomenal. We've seen that ministry grow from 27 chaplains to 135 chaplains in just about seven years. And so our churches are on mission, as which... Uh, your pastor is encouraging you to be so, and I just am so encouraged to hear the stories, the testimonies this morning. Just, uh, yeah, warmed my heart to hear that, to hear that going on. I mean, we also have a number of other things. I just was in Montreal this week with some leaders exposing them to church planting in Quebec. As uh, Pastor Jeff was mentioning, Quebec remains a mission field with uh, 7 to 8 million Canadians who happen to speak French and only 0.8 of 1% self-identifying as Christian, yeah, that's one of the lowest percentages in the entire world, certainly all the Americas, North, South, Central America. And so we need to continue to reach out to a group of Canadians who happen to speak French with the gospel. And I get partnerships in churches like this and around Canada to go into partnerships to start uh, French-speaking churches in Quebec and uh, had the joy of spending several days in Montreal exposing leaders to what's going on in the, in the La Belle Provence. Uh, the relief ministry is in our department called FAIR, and again, we've been incredibly busy. I have a pile of literature out on a table that I would love not to bring home with me, so please come by and pick up something. Learn something new about what's going on in this movement that you're a part of. Whether you're aware of that or not, you are a part of a much larger movement than just yourselves. I have a couple uh, of the latest editions of our national magazine. This will just give you a general view of all that's going across Canada and around the world through our missionaries. Uh, I also have a document that is our five-year strategic plan. If you want to know what's going on on mission, over 500 churches across Canada on mission, this little eight-page document will give you some of that information. Also, I have some information, something I'd like each of you to consider. And we have started just three years ago a child sponsorship program in our FAIR department, which stands for Fellowship, Aid, and International Relief. It's our relief uh, humanitarian development justice ministry. 
We've seen that ministry grow in the last fives exponentially. Our churches are wanting to get more and more involved in relief work and justice issues. And so we've, we've been coming alongside our churches to make that happen. We are currently in about 35 countries with different types of projects from food distribution to any number of different things. But we have a special relationship in four countries, five or six different child sponsorship uh, type ministries. In Honduras, there's an orphanage. In Lebanon, there's a school for Syrian refugee children and a school for uh, young women who have been marginalized and, and left uh, on their own and come into, our, into a basically like an orphanage. In Sri Lanka, we have two different uh, compounds where our schools and, and also development projects for adults to learn vocational skills. And our newest one is actually in Dominican Republic with 75 Haitian orphans. And what we need our churches, individuals like yourself in our churches, is to sponsor these children so we can sustain this ministry for years, if not decades to come, and hopefully grow this ministry. And that's an opportunity, just like you do with World Vision or with Compassion. Some of you are familiar with that. It's $35 a month, and you can pick a child in one of these uh, four countries and uh, be involved in your fellowship child sponsorship program. I just was in Honduras about a month ago visiting our, our uh, orphanage there. My wife and I sponsor a little boy there. And uh, just seeing a ministry that needs to grow, really needs to grow. And we're trying to raise some funds right now to build another facility because there are so many uh, sad stories, marginalized kids in, in Honduras that need a home and to find Jesus. But I'd love you to pick up that little brochure and learn more about the child sponsorship program. I'd deeply appreciate if, you, if you'll go by the table and pick that up. Anyway, that's enough of the promotion. I've come to really come and share about God's word. So let's just prepare our hearts, will you? Will you just pray with me, Father? Father, we're just so grateful for your word. I just pray your word will speak to your children this morning, whether in this room or online. I just pray, Father, your word We'll just zero in and that, Father, we will learn something that's very specific to ourselves, that's very much needed, and that, Father, you will be in the end glorified, but, Lord, we will be just encouraged and challenged, and, Father, that we will apply what we hear from your still small voice. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So our message this morning is called God is for us. That's a quote from Romans chapter 8, verse 31. This morning I want to speak to us about a doctrine that is generally not really referred to very often. And it's the doctrine or the teaching. A doctrine is basically a, a body of biblical teaching found throughout the scriptures. And then we bring it together and we call it a doctrine. It's a doctrine of providence. It's not a word that is generally used in the parlance of 21st century language nowadays, but it's actually a, a word that is just full of rich meaning. And I, I want to unpack what this actually looks like from probably one of the best-known portions of God's word that speaks to this whole teaching on providence. The actual word providence is really the hope that we receive knowing that the Lord is directing our lives, that he's directing and preserving our lives with his divine care and his unbelievable wisdom. We have a providential father who is an all-wise father who comes alongside and brings good things to us. This knowledge is especially helpful for us as believers, especially when we're in times of difficulty, times of distress, times of disappointing, disappointment. When we know we're under the watchful care of an all-caring, wise father, 
that helps, especially in those times that are very difficult. The Bible's message <clears throat> in this passage is simply this. God is for us in verse 31 of, of Romans chapter 8. But I want to read the passage this morning before we get into the, the body of what we're looking at. And I'm going to be unpacking this passage uh, verse by verse this morning. So we're in Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 24. Now that we are saved, we eagerly look forward to this freedom. Mm, isn't that great? Freedom in salvation. For if you already have something, you don't need to hope for it. But if you look forward to something we don't have yet, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our distress, for we don't even know what we should pray for now, uh, nor how we should pray. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his Son, so that his Son would be the firstborn with many brothers and sisters, and having chosen them, he called them to come to him, and he gave them right standing with himself. And he promised, them, promised him his glory. What can we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't God who gave us Christ, also give us everything? What a great passage of Scripture. It's an encouragement. It's a great passage. The early church summarized, if I can get you to slip just two slides forward. Yeah, right there. The early church uh, summarized God's relationship with his children in a simple Latin phrase. Back in the day where Latin, when Latin was the language of choice in religious circles. And the Latin phrase was this, Deus pro nobles, Deus pro nobles, which means God is for us. And that would be a common phrase that I would greet Jeff with in the morning, Deus pro nobles. That's how we would greet one another, God is for us. It was an acknowledgement that God is everywhere, that God is, is caring for us, his wisdom is available. It's a simple phrase that really speaks to this doctrine of providence, Providence ensures, it really promises us that God is for us all the time. The Apostle Paul asks in Romans 8 and verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then in verse 35, he itemizes some of those things that might be against us. And they're not pleasant. He refers to them, he gives us really, a, he itemizes them as distress and persecution and famine and suffering and danger and sickness and even a coronavirus. They can all come at us, they can all whack us. There's always going to be curveballs in life, but no God is for us. He's in the midst. He's not far away. Paul says that no matter what comes our way, no matter what we must endure, and some of you are enduring painful things even now. I know. I know. 
no matter what. Nothing has the power to sever us from this providential care from an all-wise heavenly Father. This is the promise of Scripture. Do you believe it? This is what the Word tells us over and over again. This is just what, but one passage. He sees everything. Nothing happens by accident. Now, the actual word, providence, has got an interesting backstory. And if you like words like I do, you might find this interesting. So that'll be only about 8% of you. But I'm going to tell you anyway. The word comes from the Latin word vadir, which literally means to see. To see. And we have transliterated, not translated, but transliterated that word vadir into the English language as video. You get a video? I mean, back in the 90s you did. But you get a video, that's vadir, to see. Then you throw us the prefix pro before it, pro vadir. It basically means to see beforehand. God sees beforehand. It's a word that is closely associated to the biblical word foreknowledge. You'll see that word more often than not in the New Testament. God's foreknowledge. But the actual translation of provadir into the English language is best translated with the English word provision. Provision. God's provision. Which begs the obvious question, and I'm going to be asking four questions as we walk through this passage this morning. And it's this, the first question is this, what does our knowledge of God's foreknowledge provide for us? What is my knowledge, my knowledge knowing that God is, has foreknowledge about my life, what does that provide for me? And it's one simple word found in verses 24 and 25 of Romans chapter 8. It's the word hope, hope. The Christian faith is a hopeful faith. It's supposed to be. It is full of hope. It's pregnant with hope. It's full of hope. Listen to these words again from verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Interesting that he puts patience as a qualifier to this wonderful knowledge that we have a hopeful faith. Hope is basically future thinking. It's believing things are going to turn out okay. And the confidence of our hope, for anyone in this world, the confidence that we have hope is based on an object in which our hope is based on. And the beautiful thing for the Christian, for the child of God, is that we have an object that is full of hope, that our lasting and true and eternal hope is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's not going to let us down. Our hope is anchored in the fact that God loves his children and he's going to take care of his children. Our hope is based, it's anchored in the fact that God is good, that God is good all the time. And he only brings good things, even though they may not feel very good at the time. There's a purpose for them. Paul calls us to hope in verse 24, 25, even when we cannot see what's going on in our life as seemingly a good thing. Knowing that God is for us, that's verse 31, he then says we need to be patient, verse 25. That states, so the, so the question then becomes, 
What is it I'm supposed to be patient about? What is it I'm waiting for? Our second question, wait for what? What is it I'm supposed to be waiting patiently for? Well, Paul is so good. He gives us the answer in verse 26 and 27. One thing that we wait for is that the Spirit of God is interceding on our behalf. Listen to verse 26, 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is uh, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, this verse is often woefully misunderstood. Misunderstood. The Bible here, in these verses, particularly verse 27, is promising something. It is promising you, as a child of God, that there is a hidden work of God happening in your life that you're completely unaware of, but it's happening. Oh, yeah, it's happening 24-7. On behalf of all his children, the Spirit of God is interceding for you. Notice the preposition. It's not with you, but for you. His children, he says, I am interceding with groanings too deep, too deep for words. It's a heartfelt. It is a compassionate. It's a sympathetic intercession on your behalf. Now, what is intercession? Again, it comes from a really groovy Latin word, interceder, which means go between. It's two words. It's a compound word, go between. What is an intercessor? It's a go-between. You go between the cancer and your son's health. You're a go-between the safety and your daughter traveling down the 407. It is you be going between financial reversal or ruin and the need for your son to have a job. You're a go-between. That's what a go-between is. That's what an intercessor is. It's a person who is a go-between between a thrice holy God and an individual in desperate need. You're the go-between. And my goodness, we need intercessors in our churches. Intercessors. Every church I pastored before taking on this gig, I always made sure I was the leader of the prayer ministry. And I went out for people of faith because these were people that just, you know, so much of what they did can't be taught. It's more caught. I like hanging around people of faith. And they would lead our prayer ministry because I knew we're leading. We're leading into principalities. This, this, is, this is not flesh and blood stuff. This is, this is spiritual. We need intercessors. But, beloved, you need to know this. You have the Spirit of God interceding on you. Yeah. He's interceding on your behalf. Hannah, he's interceding on your behalf every day of the week. And you don't know about it. I mean, you know it. But that should give us great courage in times of tremendous difficulty. And we have the Spirit of God on our behalf praying for us. Not with us, but for us. Earlier in Roman, Romans in chapter 8, verse 9, where Paul assures the believers that we are all indwelt if we are blood-bought believers, followers, devoted followers of Jesus Christ. He says the Spirit of God is indwelling you. He, he's, he's in your life. He's in your vicinity. In... Um, Verse 26, it promises here that he will help us in his intercession. The verse uses this word to help. Now, that's an interesting little word. It's only used one other time in the entire New Testament. 
And there's a familiar story. It's the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus comes to their home. And Martha starts to complain that Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, you know, just enjoying the teaching, enjoying time with her Savior while she's busy making the meal and getting things ready. And she comes to Jesus and she says, she's not helping me. Uh, You know, there's a burden here of which she's not really coming alongside to, to lift some of that burden. So the idea here in Romans 8 and verse 26 is that the Holy Spirit is willing to lift some of the burden. He's going to do some of the heavy lifting in your life, especially in times of struggle and difficulty. When, when you get a pink slip at work or the doctor's report is not good or your bank, bank statement is bad news for three months in a row and you've messed up again and you're so ashamed about messing up again and you don't even know how to pray anymore, know this, the Spirit of God is. He's praying 24-7. He's praying on your behalf. This is the hidden work of God that's happening in your life and my life every day that we hardly even acknowledge. It's happening without our knowledge. And this should reassure us. You know, the wonderful thing about this passage in Romans 8 and verse 26 and verse 34 of these two of this passage is that it's also very Trinitarian in its scope and its promise. Verse 26. The intercession that is happening is within the believer, within the believer, with, with, with the Holy Spirit praying. But in verse 34, the intercession is also happening outside with Christ at the right hand of the Father praying on your behalf. Very Trinitarian. We're getting all kinds of praying happening in our lives from the Godhead. This should be a reassurance and encouragement, especially in times of distress. In times of particular difficulty, uncertainty, remind yourself, remind yourself, there's a go-between going on. There's intercession going on, interceding on your behalf. And Paul indicates that this should make us more peaceful. That should be the byproduct of that, the outcome, more peaceful, more encouragement. As we remain, he says at the end of verse 25, patient, patient in the times of difficulty. God is taking you through this for a reason. As difficult as it may be. Which leads us to our third question. Our third question is this. Do we know what the Holy Spirit is actually praying? Great, he's praying. But what's he praying about? Can we get a glimpse of what that might be? Well, Paul gives us a glimpse. It's found in verse 27. The the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so... Paul intimates to us that much of what the Spirit of God is praying when he's interceding is that we will come to understand, come to full understanding what the will of God is in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of uncertainty, to know this is the will of God for my life and to come to terms with that. In these times of uncertainty and difficulty, we especially struggle to understand God. I remember an occasion where it was a book that helped me get through a really difficult time to understand this very concept. It was Philip Yancey's book, Disappointment with God. I was disappointed with him because I didn't fully understand providence, this whole teaching about providence. The Holy Spirit is praying on our behalf, and that's a wonderful thing to know. Now, this can happen. The difficulty of knowing that God has got a good, a good thing happening here in the midst of my cancer treatment. 
I mean, I even struggle to say that out verbally. I, I struggle with it. But it's uh, those who do struggle with it, you're in good company. You're in good company. A couple Old Testament ca- characters are perfect examples of people who struggled with this knowledge of God's all-wise, caring, you know, providence. Listen to the testimony of one very well-known Old Testament character, and guess who this might be? It's astounding what he said. He, and he's referring to God, God has torn me in his wrath and hated me. This is a believer. God has torn me in my wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth to me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Who's that? That's Job. Well done. Job 16, verse 9. You see, in the early days of Job's incredible suffering, he would experience this, I mean, basically a whirlwind of grief and suffering and loss. Incredible. A holocaust of loss and hurting. And looking at that, it would make perfect sense to an individual who doesn't, you know, fully understand the providence of God. It would be perfectly reasonable to come to that conclusion that God hates me. I'm cursed. If you don't understand God's providence, it seems reasonable to move as a believer into that. And that's why... As a pastor of no, a pastor where I pastored for just over 25 years, and there would be people so full of bitterness and hurt, and they love Jesus. But this providence has been a real difficult concept to, to fathom and to agree with. Here's another example Genesis 42 and verse 16 we read, And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, he's presumed dead. Simeon is no more. He's presumed held by Pharaoh in Egypt. And now you would take Benjamin, that's his youngest son, believing he's going to be traded in so Simeon will be saved. All this has come against me. Now, everything Jesus, or everything Jacob, sorry, believes to be true and he comments on is not. None of it's true. Joseph is not dead, Simeon is not a prisoner. And Benjamin will not be exchanged for the safe return of Simeon. Jacob doesn't understand the true nature of his circumstances. And we can live in life, and that can happen. We can jump to conclusions in the midst of suffering. Jump to conclusions in the midst of disappointment. Jump to conclusions in the midst of uncertainty and start to believe things that are absolutely not true. That God has something remarkable happening in our lives. We're just not privy to it quite yet. Imagine this Sunday afternoon you finally get your Sunday nap. I don't know if you still do that. Boy, I used to say at the end of every church service, I'd say, well, not every, but a lot of them, I'd say, you know, I'd say, goodbye, do something spiritual this afternoon, have a nap. You know, if you had a busy, busy week, you're exhausted, you got the kids and so you go downstairs to the basement to get on that sofa and you have a great nap. And not long after, you have the slamming of the kitchen pantry door and the stomping on, this, on the floor and the clattering of dishes and glasses and the giggling of the kids are upstairs and you're getting more and more frustrated because you want your nap, you deserve your nap. They should realize you need a nap. 
And finally, you get so frustrated, so exacerbated that you start stomping up those basement stairs and you're going to give a piece of your mind. Now, you haven't got much left, but you're going to give a piece of your mind to those three kids of yours. And you come into the kitchen and you look at them and right away you're stopped in your, you, you, and you got your three kids all beautifully dressed up. And they've made a nice, beautiful lunch with all the dishes done. And there's a big, lovely card that says, Happy Father's Day. And a lovely cake that they made with their own hands saying, We love you, Daddy. And you are stopped. And in a flash, in a single moment, your understanding of the events you thought are flipped on their head. This happens in life all the time. It happens all the time. And what I would say is we have to stop harboring basement-type thinking. we got to start thinking with upper-room-type thinking and recognizing God has a special plan. He's providentially a caring God who loves me. He's good all the time. He, he's someone who loves his children and only has our best interests. That's upper room thinking. Got to move from the basement to upper room to see what's really going on in my life. Well, back in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that the Spirit of God is praying for us. Verse 26. We're told that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is praying that we might know the will of God. Verse 27. And if we live a life that is tuned in with upper floor thinking, we're going to recognize that even in uncertain times, verse 28... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Everything in my life has purpose. That's what the verse is saying. All things, not big things, not just the big things, not just the most important things. The verse says in verse 28, all things have purpose. Which leads to our last question, question four. What ultimate purpose do all these things, that's what verse 28 says, all these that the Spirit of God is praying for, what do all these things have purpose? How do they have purpose in my life? Well, let's read verse 29 because Paul gives us the answer. That we might be conformed to the image of his Son. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined be, to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Romans 8.35 goes on to assure us that in the midst of difficulties and distress and famine and persecution and dangers and financial reversals and cancer, all have purpose. And I know that's hard to take sometimes. I get it. I'm pointing three fingers at myself. They all have purpose, but we don't always know why. Or we choose to refuse to live like we can find out. And because of that, our response is inevitably similar to Job's. It makes reasonable sense that God has left me in this miserable state. But if I know all things... That, are, uh, that God says in verse 29 are foreknown and predestined. He's, he has this foreknowledge. He's not surprised by what's going on in your life right now. And they all have purpose, verse 28. Every circumstance in my life, whether good, whether bad, whether sweet or sour, 
all of them have providentially happened in my life so that I might be more and more like Jesus, conformed to his son. That's the purpose. This is necessary for you to be more like Jesus. The ultimate purpose of my life as a child of God is to become more like Jesus. That's why Paul would declare in verse 31, God is for us, even in the midst of difficulty and uncertainty. God is conforming and transforming and molding us on the mountaintops as well as the valleys to be more and more like his son. And the final confirmation of God's providential care is found in the cross. Verse 32 of Romans 8, He, God, who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The cross, Jesus' death, displays for all of us for all time the providential care of God for his children. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563 in the early days of the Reformation. And really, a catechism is really just a teaching tool to equip and to teach disciples. I've used the, the form of a catechism this morning by giving you four questions, which we sought to answer from, God, from God's Word. But when it's asked, it basically asks a question and gives a simple answer from God's Word. When the Heidelberg Catechism asks, asks the believer this, what do you understand by the providence of God? I love the beautiful reflection that it actually gives us an answer. Listen. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hands heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us by the chance, not by chance, sorry, come to us not by chance, but by his heavenly hand. Paul was teaching this whole providence, this teaching, this doctrine of providence to a group of believers, the initial believers in Rome, because they were people who were going through a horrible time where they were struggling to believe God's goodness and care was really true. In July of, July of 64 AD, in fact, July 19th, 64 AD, a fire, a fire broke out in Rome and it burnt down 10 of the 14 major, major districts of Rome. So, you know, 10 of 14 districts, that's most of Rome was burned down over a six-day, you know, just torrential rage, raging fire. And the rumors quickly spread that it was Emperor Nero who had lit this fire because he had always wanted to re-envision the city in his own, you know, architectural glory. The reality is it was probably lit by a, a, a lamp in a warehouse and then started a, this huge conflagration. Nero stamped out these rumors, though, because he looked for a scapegoat. And in two of these remaining uh, uh, four districts that were not really hit by the fire, but two of those four districts were uh, populated uh, significantly by this new group called Christians. And so he blamed the Christians. And the Roman historian Tacitus writes, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Arrest warrants went out Leaders were imprisoned, many were tortured, and many were 
executed in the most ridiculous, grotesque ways possible. In the midst of that, Paul needed to talk to them about providence. Just like right now, I'm going to go visit in two weeks the border and the Ukraine and Poland. Our missionaries have been there for now over two months with a pile of Polish Christian volunteers and Ukrainian Christians need to hear about the providence of God right now. Terribly difficult time as believers. Apostle Paul teaches the providence of God here in Romans chapter 8 because people really need to hear about this. He was reminding us, reminding the faithful that God is doing a hidden work of God even in the midst of your pain. In times of uncertainty and difficulty, you're experiencing this for a purpose. And so the message this morning is asked four questions. And I sought to give you some reasoned answers from God's word from this passage. Question one, what does our knowledge of God's knowledge or God's foreknowledge provide? And the scripture says it's hope, hope in the midst of the uncertainty. Question two, it says in verse 25 that we are to wait with patience. What are we, to, what are we waiting for? What are we having to be patient about? Well, the answer is we wait patiently in times of difficulty for his help. Help, verse 26. His help is provided to us through this constant reminder of his intercession being a go-between between you and your pain. The Spirit of God, Jesus is praying. The third question, do we know what the Holy Spirit is actually praying for in this intercession? The answer is verse 27. The Holy Spirit is praying that we might know and understand the will of God. That we not respond like Job did, not respond like Jacob did, but we will respond in a way in which we understand God's a good God who loves his children. And this is difficult, but I will walk patiently with you, Father, through it. And what ultimate purpose? Why would I want to walk patiently in these midst of difficulties? And the question is, or the answer is, Romans 8 and verse 31, that we might be, or verse 29, that we might be conformed to be more like Jesus Christ. And so, brothers, sisters, if you're not going through a difficult time now, you will. And the wise and the prudent follower of Christ prepares themselves for those days by understanding this wonderful teaching, this wonderful doctrine about God's foreknowledge, his providence, that an all-wise and caring God take us, takes us through even uncertainty and difficulties for a purpose, that we might be more and more and more like Jesus. It's wonderful being on the mountaintops, but often we learn more in the valley. Father, I just want to thank you for your word. And my prayer, Father, is that this word comes as both an encouragement, because there are people who are hurting here this morning, but also as a challenge. That, Father, we would take to heart your word and believe it to be your word, and then by faith, exercising faith, we step up and trust that, Father, you have the best intent for each of your children. That even the difficulties that happen, have, have happened, will happen, Father, th these are within the agenda you have for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would learn from them and that out of it we might become more and more and more like Jesus. 
For we want to pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you out at the literature table. Steve, thank you very much for the reminder of God's providence. Steve will be here or out at the table afterwards, and please uh, introduce yourself to him. I know he'd appreciate meeting you. Uh, we end every service at Harbor with uh, four words, and so let me invite you to stand, and I'll read some scripture, and then we'll be dismissed. And Steve's taken us through Romans 8, and then Romans 8 ends with these words, with the confident statement of God's love for us. And so I thought it would be appropriate that we end with these words. This is how confident Paul's, uh, Paul is that we will never be separated from God's love. Here's what he writes. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And with that confidence, uh, we go. Harbor, we are sent.